Welcome to Emergency Room, the COVID Diaries, a podcast that tells the story of how the COVID-19 pandemic swept across America from the perspective of the staff of a large American hospital. Hello, my name is Guy Madison. I'm a registered nurse and I was reassigned to the emergency rooms and ICUs of Harborview Medical Center at the beginning of the pandemic from my regular job at the hospital in Seattle, Washington. These COVID diaries will introduce you to my colleagues and co-workers who showed up every day of the pandemic to treat and care for those taken by this deadly disease. And I'm Matthew Hall, a journalist with absolutely no medical background whatsoever. But as you're about to find out, I do have a background as a kindergarten teacher. We're going to provide a rarely heard inside account of how frontline medical staff responded to the virus and school teachers and people who play in bands and how they cared for those infected by it. The story is told through the eyes of Guy, who is responsible for the day-to-day and night-to-night emergency room response for incoming COVID-19 patients, as well as other hospital officials and medical staff. But Guy, we have an announcement. It's official. The pandemic is over. Over. It's over. How do we know that? Well, you know, Matthew, it's interesting how we know that. We know that because mask mandates have lifted. Magically, mask mandates have lifted. Hospitalizations are down. This is true. Everybody's gone back to the mall, to the pub, to their favorite restaurant, to the office, in fact. That's apparently how we know it's over. You know what I love? What's that? I love how some person in Florida can just decide, eh, you guys aren't going to have to wear masks on planes anymore. And lo, the pandemic is over. Yes, just some person with a very um, uh, limited resume in terms of their <laughs> their services as a judge and lawyer, um, but apparently they know some stuff. But, uh, you know, let's, let's be quite honest about this. However people think or feel about the pandemic, it is true that um, infections of the BA2 variant continue to surge in many parts of the country. You just uh, can find any number of tracking maps on the internet that will show you how many cases there are in different areas, usually correlating with unvaccinated populations. And the disruption to many industries around the country, service industries, entertainment industries, Uh, where you go to get your coffee, where you go to get your sandwich. Just incredibly disrupted by the amount of sick calls because everyone is catching COVID. Thankfully, the people that are vaccinated are not getting very sick from it, but still you can't go into work. And we're going to talk a little bit more later in the show about the impact on a particular industry that I'm associated with, the music industry, and how we're going to deal with COVID moving forward. Also in this episode, we're going to have a very quick chat with the wonderful Dr. John Lynch, who is the infection control guru at Harborview Medical Center and uh, University of Washington Medicine in general. He's been at the front line of of, uh, creating the protocols to keep us all safe, people at the hospital, people in Washington State, even people nationally. He's nationally recognized. John's going to talk to us very quickly about why vaccinations are cool why we should all get some. 
But uh, let's take a little trip back in time now, two years out from the beginning of the pandemic. Matthew, you had an interesting job during the pandemic. You were a kindergarten cop. Well, actually, a kindergarten teacher, I guess. <laughs> oh, I was a cop and I wore that badge with pride. Oh, the enforcer, <laughs> kindergarten enforcer at a large East Coast metropolis. So fill us in on the timeline of how that went, those, you know, that period between 2021 and 2022 where you were working in the kindergarten and how things changed in care, in terms of taking care of kids. So I was working a journalist as a journalist, but that industry was slowly falling apart. When the pandemic hit, the bottom fell out of it completely, especially for the area that I was working in. I was working previously as a substitute teacher every now and then, and when the pandemic swept through America, uh, school shut down, so I was out of work two times. So I, I was uh, truly figuring out what, what to do. I was kind of um, blessed in a way. I got an advantage because I got uh, COVID-19 very early on in the equation in yes, March. Yes, you did. I remember it well. <laughs> in, in March 2020. And I would not wish that time um, upon anybody. And I do not recommend getting COVID-19. Um, but what advantage that did give me when I, when I got through it was that I had a bucket load of antibodies. When it was decided uh, that schools would try and reopen in uh, in September of 2020 uh, in the school districts that I was working in, there were a few different approaches. They had kids staying at home doing school over Zoom. They had kids who were doing a hybrid version of school and they had kids who were coming into school uh, as per a regular schedule. I was uh, asked to be a kindergarten cop. I had no experience whatsoever in teaching kindergarten or that age group. The reason I was hired was because I had a bucket load of antibodies and it was considered at that time that I would not be calling out sick. This is all pre-vaccines, very important. Mm. The reason I was hired as well was because teachers didn't want to or couldn't work in school buildings for their own uh, health risks, but they had kids who had to go to school. So I initially had a class of five kids, kindergarten age, and it was uh, incredibly challenging for me and it was incredibly challenging for the kids, but we, <laughs> had, but we had a successful year. The schools, though, were, were like ghost ships. They were empty and people would walk around going, oh, my God, this is wild. Is it a Saturday? Because there was seriously, each class had like five kids and uh, it was very eerie and we were definitely living in different times. An important thing to remember was all the kids were masked and one of the stipulations at that time was that in classrooms, kids have to stay six feet apart, socially distanced. Now, as soon as that stipulation came in, the, the staff and the teachers just shook their heads and said, okay, good luck keeping a bunch of six-year-olds six feet apart. That never happened. It never, ever happened. Even though it was a, 
a stipulation from the Department of Education and, and the health departments. It just never, ever happened. Interesting from my perspective was that there was a lot of uh, chatter about, oh, poor kids wearing masks, they'll never do it. The kids were never the problem. The kids would always wear their masks. Always, always, always. The problem with compliance in that area was always adults. Mm -hmm. So the kids are like, yeah, we'll do it. Whatever we have to do to stay safe at school, we'll do it. Um, But it was adults who, who would always push those boundaries. Schools got shut down quite often at the beginning, beginning of the school year. Transmissions uh, meant that and positive cases meant that schools would be shut down. And that was also because local authorities were figuring out how's this going to work and they were kind of making it up as they went along. So for schools to be shut down was, was quite a common occurrence and you'd be out for seven days, sometimes ten days. And it was truly a very challenging environment a lot of fatigue mentally, physically, emotionally for uh, people who were working in the buildings. And it was... Uh, right, was the... Can I ask a question there? Of course. Was was the fatigue, the fatigue of the stress of not... of the unknown, not knowing whether you were going to get sick, not knowing how dangerous the work environment was? I felt personally okay my i kept this is before uh vaccines remember and i i had uh confidence in my antibody levels because my i had an antibody test and my doctor said to me your levels are off the charts you could go swimming in a bucket of covid and you'd probably be okay mm-hmm. um so personally i felt confident and at less risk but other people especially teachers who were not working in the building, who were working remotely, they had more concern than those people on the front line. Wow, interesting. More concern. And sometimes uh, negativity can spread amongst people and it becomes an issue for morale. And that was part of the stress for, for many staff members. Things changed a little when uh, teachers started getting vaccinated in January of that year. And uh, by the end of the year, we'd gone from a class size of five kids to having 15, 20, 25, almost back to normal. The last month was back to normal. What you noticed was the kids who had been in class since the beginning were well socially well-adjusted, were engaging with other kids and those who came in later they honestly did not know what what had hit them they were like lost at sea they didn't know how to interact with other kids they'd be they were physically isolated even though they're in a group of 15 or 20 people they they struggled to communicate and that was just so apparent that the that six months at that very important time in in development for kids they lost a lot of uh development during that time yeah i'll I'll just pop something in there i was reading an interesting study recently from um uh, national health service in great britain that said that um they studies that they did showed that toddlers uh during the pandemic were less likely to um 
to be able to recognize emotion on people's faces and word acquisition was also um, decreased during the pandemic times from their normal levels that you would see in, in toddlers. That was a toddler study. But obviously that relates to all young, growing, developing children, right? Right. So I, I'm not doing um, that exact same job uh, this school year, um, but I am working at the same school uh, a couple of days a week doing a few different roles. Um, but what we have noticed is that uh, especially kids going into kindergarten this year, they're really struggling socially, emotionally, um, and that's because they spent a year uh, penned up on a computer. So mm-hmm. it's it really is a thing uh, at that young age for kids uh, who missed out on that year of school, and it's also a thing for high school kids who missed uh, a year of school in their social development as well. It's not yet known the full impacts of COVID-19 and the isolation that everyone experienced for one to two years, but it's going to be interesting to see uh, how it pans out. Now that the pandemic is over. Exactly. And um, (laughs) word acquisition and uh, uh, emotional expression recognition can, uh, can get back to normal, hopefully pretty quickly. Well, it's fascinating. And it's, um, I I guess it must've been a pretty, um, well, I would imagine rewarding time to discover a completely new field of work that you'd not previously worked in there's because a, of the pandemic. There's a, one of the most rewarding things for me personally is uh, going back to the school on the days that I do and the kindergarten kids running up to me saying, Matt, 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 and wanting a hat and a hug and saying, I love you, Matt, and then running off to go down the slide or punch some other kid in the head. No, they don't punch each other in the head. Um, but but that's it, it was great to have a role in getting those kids through a very difficult year. Indeed, and thank you for doing so. A lot of obviously a lot of people, you know, super challenging times. Teachers not being able to go to work. Other people stepped up. So thank you. Dr. John Lynch, thank you so much for joining the podcast. It's an honour to have you on. I and all the listeners that work at Harborview or UW Medicine are probably very familiar with you and your role. But for those listeners from outside of our system, would you be so kind as to introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Sure. Thanks for having me on, Guy. Really an honour to be on this podcast with you. Yeah, so my name is John Lynch. I'm trained as an infectious diseases doctor. My role here at Harborview is as the medical director of our employee health program and our infection prevention and control program. And over the last two years, really leading the clinical response to COVID-19 for the UW medicine system. That's a lot on your plate. Is there anything that you've had to let go by the wayside because of all those responsibilities, given the extra impact of COVID on your work? Yeah, I would say probably two major areas. One is I haven't really done much clinical infectious disease care. You know, I'm really lucky to be able to take care of patients with all kinds of infectious diseases here at Harborview. Um, And because of the COVID work, it's really displaced my ability to do that. And so that's really gone by the wayside. I say also uh, in terms of that work I do in infection prevention, that's around preventing infections from occurring in the hospital um, and employee health. 
you know, my efforts have really been focused on the COVID response, keeping employees safe from getting COVID, keeping patients safe from getting COVID uh, in our hospitals and clinics. Then a lot of the other programmatic stuff that I've been involved with that I really love doing over the last uh, 10 years of my career have really taken second tier or backseat to that work. And so I would say COVID has really taken over pretty much everything for the last two years. Yeah, huge impact on on everyone and everything. So I know that you are um, heavily involved in antimicrobial stewardship program for our hospital at Harborview. Do you think that being pulled away from that vital work has had a negative impact or? Absolutely. So I am lucky to be able to work with Dr. Chloe Bryson Kahn, who's the medical director for antimicrobial stewardship here at Harborview. And yeah, that work has also taken a backseat to the COVID work. You know, Throughout the pandemic, those of us doing this work, the infectious disease uh, folks doing work in infection prevention and control, antibiotic stewardship, employee health, have really had to divert most of our time to the COVID response. You know, we recognize how important it is to keep people safe from infectious diseases, to use antibiotics and antivirals and antifungals wisely in the hospital. But we also know that the urgent need, the emergent need to respond to COVID-19 in our four walls um, and thinking about prevention has really come to the forefront, is really been the emergent issue. And so, yeah, all those things have been displaced as a result. Mm. Yeah, so since you have focused on preventing COVID within our four walls and and also within the community in general, I was wondering if you would like to speak to some of the things that we still need to do here to make sure that we get on top of the pandemic, which is patently not over given the large amount of community infections and then also uh, infections within the um, the staff body of our hospital and UW Medicine in general. The viewers can't see, but I am clean shaven at the moment because we've gone back to wearing N95 masks at work to protect ourselves from both each other and from the patients and visitors in the hospital to try and control the outbreak of COVID amongst staff members. So, could you speak a little bit to the importance of vaccination and the work that you guys are doing to try and minimize those impacts on us? Yeah, sure, Guy. Uh, you've asked a really important and complex question. So <laughs> when we think about this, um, you know, throughout the pandemic, I think a lot of us have gotten used to this idea of a layered approach to preventing COVID-19 transmission. For two years, we've been looking at that layered approach everywhere in our communities, our schools, public indoor spaces, and similar my focus has really been in how we deal with uh, prevention in hospitals, clinics, our emergency departments, our ORs, and similar. What we have here is sort of a couple of different issues. One, we have a, a lot of people at work, right? Throughout the pandemic, a lot of people stayed home. When you're taking care of patients, you need to be at the bedside. You need to be in the clinic room. So we have our, our colleagues, our healthcare workers uh, are at work with patients who need to be seen. So we didn't have that opportunity to ultimately physical distance, right, and stay home. And so we've really focused very hard on all these layered approaches. We can go into great depth about all these. I'll focus a little bit on vaccination, but I do want to recognize how important things like masking have been for us to allow us to be closer together, to be closer to patients as we examine them, as we do procedures on them and similar. Um, and as you mentioned, using respirators, N95s, KN95s and similar, has uh, been an important tool as we move up and down uh, transmission risk within our four walls. The other important things here are some of the invisible things like air handling, 
We're really lucky in hospitals that generally have better air movement, a lot of fresh air, really good filtration that also keeps our environment safe. So when we think about all this, um, you know, masking slash respirators, uh, clean air, access to testing, staying home when you're sick for health workers have all been really important. But I think, you know, clearly over the last year, one of the most, if not arguably the most important intervention has been access to vaccination, both uh, the, you know, the first dose or two, depending upon which product you got, and then boosters. It has been shown over and over again throughout all the different variants we've seen over the last year and a half that vaccination prevents infection, it prevents hospitalization, and it prevents death. And you actually get more benefit when you're boosted. And so that's a good thing for healthcare workers. As I mentioned, you know, they have to come to work. They got to be here. And that's our, you know, folks working in environmental services, the folks cleaning our spaces, our engineering colleagues, you know, keeping the lights turned on and the water flowing, you know, nursing uh, folks at the bedside, therapists, business people, everyone needs to keep everything open, nutrition and food services, getting the masks, making sure the air is clean, making sure the environment is clean but also getting them vaccinated and boosted has kept our healthcare workforce relatively intact. Now, I also want to recognize that what happens in the hospital is connected to the community. And what's happening out in the community is very different than what we're seeing right now and what you described, Guy. We've seen a lot of people not wearing masks out in the community, a lot of people in indoor spaces sort of going back to normal. And indeed, you know, this morning, it's April 27th, uh, Dr. Tony Fauci said there were done with the pandemic phase of this uh, event. Um, and that's the way it feels like it's happening out in the world. And so as those numbers of cases rise, you know, that's impacting people needing to stay home because they're infected. People need to stay home because their kid is infected or they got exposed, which pulls people out of our workforce and impairs our ability to do the work that we want in, in healthcare. So that was a pretty lengthy answer. I'm happy to break it up any way you want or get more in depth if it's helpful. Yeah, it's a great answer, and um, that's kind of what I was hoping you would speak to. One, the impact that the hospital has, uh, there's a greater impact on the hospital because of the mission that we're charged with of taking care of patients and needing to keep the doors open, which requires staff from every discipline, engineering, medicine, nursing, business. So there's that. And then also you touched on a very important thing, and I would wonder if you might be able to speak a little bit more about the positive benefits of vaccination in terms of preventing infection, preventing hospitalization, and preventing death. They're three different things. And I think a lot of times people don't understand that there's a range of benefits with vaccination, not just a single benefit. Yeah, those are great points. And I'll just throw this in there for, I think also for context, you know, you and I work at the only level one trauma and burn center in the Pacific Northwest. You know, what I look at is my ultimate mission here by keeping patients and employees safe is keeping our doors open. Harborview can never close its doors. We must always be available to take care of those mission patients, trauma, burn in our community patients who can't get care uh, in the way that they see fit elsewhere. And so that's really been the focus is, is keeping our front doors open throughout all of this. And that's what I really see as my mission. Um, to answer your other question around vaccination, yeah, there's been a lot of challenging events over the last two years for all of us. But I would say one of the key ones that I was not expecting was sort of the lack of cohesion around how to respond to the pandemic. And this has impacted things like masking, um, testing, 
but really importantly, the importance of vaccination. What I wanna just really emphasize is that vaccination is the most important thing we can do to get control of this pandemic. And it is one of the key things we can do to get as close back to you know, pre-pandemic normality as possible. When we don't get vaccinated, we're allowing the pandemic to proceed unchecked, to allow this COVID-19 disease to continue to you know, move through our populations. And while it may not be as dangerous as it once was for a healthy young person, it's still pretty darn dangerous for older folks, for those who are very, very young, for those who have other medical problems. All of those folks are counting on the healthy adults in the world to get vaccinated and to, to slow down transmission. Now, you asked me to break it down into three different parts, and I do think it's worthwhile. We've experienced a bunch of different waves with these different variants. And when the vaccines came out, we were dealing with a bunch of different variants, some of which were really dangerous. You may recall, remember the Delta variant last year? Mm -hmm. This made a lot of people extremely ill. We saw some incredibly sick people uh, in the hospital uh, and in the hospitals across the country due to that infection. And what we know is that being vaccinated prevented a huge number of infections, just baseline infections. And remember, you can't get sick from COVID. You can't end up in the hospital unless you get infected, right? And so you, by decreasing the number of absolute infections through vaccination, we decrease the number of people in the hospital. Then you add on the additional benefit that if you did get infected, there was a much lower likelihood you end up in the hospital, which is really important, right? So there's that's like a double benefit, prevents you from getting infected. If you can't get infected, you can't end up in the hospital. Now, even if you get infected, your risk of ending up in the hospital is dramatically lower. And then additionally, if you don't end up in the hospital, you're not gonna die from COVID. And vaccination prevented those deaths. So it's important to recognize all those things are really, really important. But I would say probably one of the key ones uh, early on, particularly with Delta, was preventing transmission. So if you can't get infected, not only can you not get sick, but you can't give it to someone else. And so vaccination serves you, but it also serves everyone around you. And I think that there was sort of this disconnect in a lot of these conversations and some mis misinformation that was going on around out there. The vaccination was only about the person and that it was only a personal decision. And while that is true, we have to recognize that we are completely interdependent. You know, my safety is dependent upon your safety guy, right? My vaccination status and my immune system, my immune response is dependent upon your immune response. And that's true throughout our society. Um, and so the conversation around vaccination really took some unexpected and difficult turns and continues to do so. Now, I want to also rec recognize that with Omicron, we're dealing with a different beast in many ways. Uh, I would say probably the two most important things about Omicron, which emerged here in North America in late December, what is it? It was far more infectious. So one person can give it to far more, far more, many more people, but it also had less severe disease. And we're still seeing that. We're on our second surge right now of Omicron, the first one with the BA1 and now with BA2. And what we're seeing is incredible infectiousness, but much lower disease. We are also seeing that the vaccination is not as effective for folks around infection status. Like getting infected with COVID is happening at a fairly high level in the vaccinated population. But really, really importantly, it is still having a huge impact on preventing serious illness leading to hospitalization. 
So if you are vaccinated and particularly, especially if you're boosted, but really vaccinated, you are still dramatically less likely to end up in the hospital if you get infected with COVID and you are dramatically less likely to die. So vaccinations continue to have a profound impact on your personal health, population health, and the ability for our hospitals to function despite having a huge number of cases going on in the community. Thank you for that answer. And thank you for clearing that up because there has been a lot of misinformation. And I think that you hit on two really um, key points there. One, that it's not just a personal choice, that we are all responsible for each other. And secondly, that despite what is sometimes put out there as um, information, vaccine does prevent infection and does prevent the transmission of the disease. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, a part that really is it's a more subtle concept is that there are other things that happen with COVID besides ending up in the hospital. And probably everyone's heard at this point around long COVID. Mm -hmm. And the data right now supports the benefit of vaccination in preventing long COVID. There are some data out there indicating that somewhere around half of people who get COVID have ongoing symptoms uh, that last weeks or months or even longer. It is a profoundly concerning problem, given the number of infections that have occurred in the United States and across the planet, that many, many millions upon millions of people in the United States are going to be dealing with ongoing symptoms that didn't make them sick enough to end up in the hospital, but are impairing their life, their ability to return to work, their ability to return to, you know, exercise or activities that they enjoy, Um, you know, fatigue, brain fog, and all these other things we're still learning about infection. Part of that whole misinformation campaign is this sort of idea that we didn't vet the vaccines appropriately or normally, which we did. Every single step of the vaccine sort of safety net was evaluated and done appropriately. It just was done much faster than we've ever done before. So I'd say more efficiently, but everything was done. What we don't know completely is how this virus affects us in the long term, how it affects brain tissue, neural tissue, and cardiac tissue. And what we're learning is it impacts probably all of those things. And for some people, a long, long time. And vaccination clearly decreases that risk. Which is, if you think about it just on the personal level, who does not want to prevent themselves having long-term health issues? And I will say personally, myself, I know of two people that uh, have suffered the effects of long COVID, one with the the brain fog symptoms and another one with chronic fatigue. So in the same way that, uh, say, the disease polio, which was greatly um, impacted and eradicated through vaccination, left people with long-term health issues, COVID does as well. And so that's yet another reason to get vaccinated. So for all the people out there that are wondering if vaccination is still worthwhile, even though um, it's being reported that the pandemic is over. I think that Dr. Lynch has just made it clear that it is. <laughs> Absolutely. John, thank you so much for being on today. Really appreciate your time today and your input and your expertise. And also, I'd just like to say personally and on behalf of the people that I work with, thank you so much for what you've done for us over the last two years at the hospital in terms of keeping us safe and um, helping us do our job. I know that a lot of the people I speak to are very, very appreciative of uh, your efforts. So thank you. Thanks, guys. It's been great to be on, and um, I'm part of an incredible, enormous team. 
uh, doing their very, very best throughout this pandemic. So the idea for this podcast originally came from a diary that Guy kept during the early days of the pandemic uh, as he was working in an emergency room. And we've heard some amazing stories from Guy, from his diary, and here's another one. The young psychiatric patient was experiencing their first psychotic break. The patient was completely disorganized in their thoughts and presented as a danger to themselves. Patients in the throes of a psychotic break usually need to be placed on an involuntary hold in a psychiatric unit for their own protection. The patient had been admitted and the family had been present at the admission. They presented a medical history that was concerning and consistent with an upper respiratory tract infection. So we decided we would swab the patient to test them for COVID before admitting them to a psychiatric unit. Placing someone in a psychiatric unit, they're in what's called a milieu, which is a which is the general population of the unit. And usually psychiatric patients benefit from being in contact with other people. Unfortunately, this patient tested positive for the virus and was required to be isolated in a single isolation room on a psychiatric floor. Those psychiatric floors are locked down so the patients cannot leave and only specifically allowed staff and family members may enter that unit. All their medication, their food needs, any help they need with their activities of daily living, dressing, personal hygiene, all have to be handled by the nursing staff on that unit. And it's a considerable drain on resources to have someone in isolation in that setting. This patient was responding to internal stimuli. Everyone has probably seen that on the streets um, in their community. Someone suffering from mental illness appears to be carrying on a conversation with someone that isn't there, responding to, apparently responding to things that there's no physical evidence that something is interacting with them. This is the sort of patient we have. This patient's already psychotic. Now, all their interactions are gonna be with a healthcare worker who, uh, a registered nurse or a medical assistant, who's heavily donned in PPE, wearing gowns and a glove, eye protection, a face mask, for the psychotic patient, this is probably incredibly intimidating. This particular patient became obsessed with cleanliness. We told them that they tested positive for the coronavirus and that they were being isolated to protect the other staff and patients on that unit. So in some ways, them becoming obsessed with uh, cleanliness was um, something that you know, perhaps we might have predicted. Um, it's always difficult to know what will happen when psychiatric patients are presented with different medical facts. The manifestation of this obsession with cleanliness for this patient was they began to shower incessantly, sometimes up to four or five times within an hour and often for extended periods of time. 
The hot, steamy environment of the enclosed shower on the isolation room, the water splashing against the patient's mucous membranes, their mouth, their nose, we felt created aerosolized particles of the virus. For a while, we treat patients that are taking showers as being in aerosolized or airborne precautions. That means we have to wear even more protective equipment to protect us from inhaling the virus. It's a respiratory virus. So in the absence of, of knowledge, of knowing exactly what was being caused by these showers, we decided to have our engineering department come and shut off the, the, the water to the patient's room. And then we used uh, bed baths and uh, other methods for, to maintain hygiene for the patient. Firstly, to protect the environment from the supposed aerosolized COVID-19 particles was the first reason we shut the water off. Secondly, to protect the patient from her incessant washing activities, we were also concerned that she might be damaging her skin by, um, by showering so many times and so constantly. It was after about a week that we worked out that there's probably no risk, no greater risk from the showering and the aerosol and the possibility of aerosolizing the particles of COVID-19 and we were able to turn the water back on. Clinically, we judged that her skin was not at risk. Uh, luckily, this patient's COVID symptoms were mild and, uh, and she did not experience ongoing effects and eventually tested negative and was able to, um, to enter the general population of the psychiatric uh, unit. But this just is a great example, I think, of how wide-ranging the effects of the pandemic were on the operations of the hospital, right through from the nursing and medical staff who made the decisions on how to manage the patient clinically down to the engineering department having to work out how to turn off water to one particular room and then have it available again when needed. So just sort of shows how all-consuming hospital operations were affected by the coronavirus. So not only were schools affected during 2020, 2021, 2022, but so too was the service industry and the entertainment industry, as many of us know firsthand. By coincidence, we have some expertise and experience in this area. Guy, you have a, you have a day job. Well, it's a night job. Can you tell us What's been going on in the entertainment industry? Well, as many people who listen to this podcast know, um, uh, I'm the bass player of the Seattle-based uh, rock band Mudhoney, and uh, we essentially took two years off. We played our very last show in February 2020 before the pandemic began down at Pappy and Harriet's in Southern California, and then 
all holy hell broke loose with the pandemic and everything went off the road and life at the hospital, which is what the majority of this podcast has been focused on, um, took place um, and we didn't play for two years. We have recently returned to the live venue. I mean, during that time we did, after we got vaccinated, we started practicing together again and, and recording um, music because it was safe to do so with us all vaccinated. But uh, we didn't play live shows with a public audience for over two years. But Mud Honey has returned to live shows. We returned in March and we played a couple of shows at the famous Crocodile Cafe and its new location here in Seattle. They went pretty well. They were vaccinated only shows where people wore masks when they were not drinking. Um, we bubbled ourselves as best we could in the backstage. And then a couple of weeks later, we played a show down in Olympia, which was interesting because we played the Capitol Theatre in Olympia, which is uh, the capital of Washington State, a place we played many times. The week before we were going to go down, our tour manager, uh, front of house sound guy, Adam, uh, unfortunately for him, he works in the club industry and see, you know um, does a lot of shows. Uh, he works in the entertainment industry, came down with COVID, couldn't do the show. So we had to essentially at that point move back to doing all the stuff ourselves. You know, we're not a, a huge organisation, Mud Honey, but we do, um, you know, we have a booking agent that, you know, contracts our gigs and gets us our gigs. And then we, when we go on tour and we play live shows, we have a tour manager, a sound person, a merchandise person. All these people are part of our travelling roadshow, so to speak. And we are about to head out on tour. And so some big questions start to come up about what is the operational state of rock and roll? Matthew, yes, you have a question. I can see it in your face. So how how has touring changed and what's going to change? Because back in the day, back in the day now is like 2019, uh, everyone jumps in the van and off you go. But now it's obviously going to be a little different, I guess. It is indeed very different. Since uh, some some acts um, and some quite large acts have been out on the road during the pandemic, using trying to utilize bubbles. There's been some famous cases of terrible mishaps in rock and roll. Um, believe that uh, very unfortunately, uh, Paul Stanley from the band Kisses, this is well publicized, uh, Kiss, his personal guitar tech, uh, Rody, uh, passed away from COVID whilst on tour with Kiss during the pandemic. Many bands, just this last week, a number of bands uh, of a similar stature to Mud Honey, perhaps a little bit more famous, perhaps a little bit less, bands like. Uh, uh, Bob Mould and um, Jim Jonestown Massacre have um, have had to uh, pause their tours, and this has been something that's happened a lot to different bands who have gone out this year in 2022 on tour, is someone in the party will get COVID and, um, and they have to call off shows because it's irresponsible to, you know, to go into, into clubs and play shows when you're COVID positive. Um, so, yeah, you're exactly right. Before, we'd all hop in the van, the merch person, the, the sound man, the tour manager, the band, and travel in the, in the hurtling tin can across the country, stopping at all these shows and doing our thing. Obviously, the people, the, the, what's changed is we've got to try and, 
and um, isolate ourselves from too much um, contact with the public because, you know, uh, coronavirus is a respiratory virus that's transmitted through um, close contact with people over a prolonged period of time in an enclosed space. So they say if you're in contact with somebody who's COVID positive for more than 15 minutes in an enclosed, unventilated space, you have a very high risk of getting COVID. That is essentially what happens at gigs, right? So we have to put all these things in place to try and reduce the risk of us getting sick because if we get sick, we've got to pull the show off the road, which has a dire financial consequence. The more shows that we miss, the it, you know, cuts into any money we would make from the tour, potentially cuts into the money we would pay our crew and potentially, you know, cuts into the money that it costs to tour, the cost of the van. We don't own, most bands do not own vans. They rent vans uh, or tour buses. You know, a lot of bands do not own a tour bus. It's a rental situation. Um, and so all those financial um, situations come into play when you start to take shows off the road. Tours are budgeted to get the amount of money for each show that allows you to pay for the gas, to pay for the van, to pay for your crew, to make it around the country and to get back. And hopefully at the end of it, if you're very lucky, like Mud Honey are, you come away with some money at the end of that. And that's how you make a living as a musician, if you do indeed make a living as a musician. I know for a fact that Mud Honey is a band that on their backstage rider requires the blue M&Ms to be taken out of the bowl, right? <laughs> so that's a, that, that's a yeah. co contractual uh, item that you have in, in your tours. I'm kidding, people. That is a famous <laughs> contractual item, actually. <laughs> it's, a, it's famous and it's, I believe it was uh, David Lee Roth that came up with that idea and it showed... The reason they did that was it showed whether people were paying attention to the rider. It's such a piece of minutiae, you know, to, and it seems ridiculous. Why do they want the, the blue M&Ms removed? But it shows when you get to the show, are these people paying attention to the rider? There you go. Do you, though, in all seriousness, now have different things in your contracts that you didn't have in 2019, 2020? Indeed we do. And so all that stuff is handled by a person who does an incredibly large amount of work for us, our booking agent, Leafy Green Productions in uh, in wonderful San Francisco, California. Todd Cote does um, exceptional work in formulating the contracts that we, um, that the clubs that we play at uh, operate with. So every band has a contract that involves the rider and then the band supplies things part of the contract, we arrive on time, we play for um, the allotted time, we, you know, um, we behave in the way that we're, that we're supposed to per the contract. He has put in our contracts and I think many bands have, um, have these, these stipulations and um, items in their contract that we are only playing to a vaccinated audience. So vaccination status needs to be shown at the door at all these clubs. And the reason for that is... You know, we feel that people that are unvaccinated are at a much higher risk of suffering adverse effects from COVID. If they come to a show where there is a higher risk of catching COVID than if you stayed at home in your lounge room and watched TV by yourself, let's just face it, that's the truth of the matter, then 
if you come and you're vaccinated, there's much less chance you're going to get seriously ill from that. But if you're unvaccinated, there's a higher chance and we want to reduce that chance. We don't want to hurt people if we can. So that's why that's there. We also want to make the safest environment so that we don't get sick, so we don't have to pull the show off the road, <laughs> essentially. Does that mean, and this is a very serious question, does that mean there are certain parts of the United States that you would not play in on a tour that you might previously have visited? Have you made so, that decision? Have we made that decision? We have um, our tour, uh, the tour that we're going on here in a couple of weeks is the West Coast, the Midwest and some of the near South and Southwest. Um, there are areas that we are going to where the vaccination rate is considerably lower than where we live in Seattle, which has a very high vac vaccination rate, up around 90%, the greater Seattle area where we live. So are you asking me, did we consciously avoid Florida? You may say Florida. I may say <laughs> Florida. <laughs> we may say Pensacola. Um, I, the, the, the tour was previously booked before COVID, so we're honouring a lot of things that we were doing before COVID actually happened. And this tour, and then we have a, a tour later in the year to Europe, which was all stuff that was previously booked um, for 2020 that we couldn't do because the pandemic hit. So there is at the moment no conscious effort to avoid areas with low vaccination rates. But I feel that, you know, were we to be offered further shows in the, in the future and the situation has not changed where there's still a lot of people which there are being infected by the BA2 variant, then perhaps we would consider that as a as a mitigation factor in terms of being able to keep the, sh the show on the road. Emergency Room is written and presented by Matthew Hall and Guy Madison. Produced by Guy Madison, Matthew Hall and Ruinous Media. Music by Mud Honey, Beauty Hunters, Plant, Palm Frauds. And if you would like to contact us or need to contact us, just go to ruinousmedia.com. That's ruinousmedia.com. We would like to thank you for tuning in and we hope you all have a safe and happy summer. Boom shakalaka.